I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One, two, three, four! Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. This is the best bits from my radio show on Talk Radio. And this week, we're meeting Sherry Blair, talking about what it's like to date when you're intersex, and learning just why perineal massage is so important when you're pregnant. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. My producer has just pointed out to out to me that we put on our Twitter that I'd be talking to Sherry Blair and it instantly polarised views. Um, something she's done since she appeared in the public eye. Yeah, I've met her before. I thought she was great. So I'm delighted to have her on the show tonight. Hello, Sherry. Thank you so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. <laughs> I want to talk to you really about the impact of COVID-19 on women and on women's empowerment because we were talking about what a seemingly trivial trivial problem which is the beauty industry and yet when we look into it six billion pounds to the economy 80 to 90 percent of the people employed in it are women most of them are small business owners so they can't furlough themselves is COVID-19 having a greater detrimental effect on women's economic power absolutely I think that it's clear that COVID in health terms is impacting more on men than women but if you actually look at the economic effect, uh, then it is impacting much more heavily on women for, for a number of reasons. Mm. The first one is that the women are in the, the frontline services, that are the caring services that we haven't valued enough, uh, and we know the problems that care staff have had, um, our nurses and doctors have had as well in the frontline fight against uh, COVID because of, of lack of equipment. Uh, and lack of support. So there's that. You mentioned the beauty industry. Women are in other industries, yep. uh, which are often, again, low-pay industries that have been impacted. And, and by the way, health and the beauty industry is about health. That is not a trivial mm. uh, matter, actually. And I think sometimes mm-hmm. uh, male, our male leaders don't understand that enough. Mm. And then finally, of course, uh, when we look at what's happening with homeschooling with the fact that men and women uh, are now at home and also trying to work all the statistics show that women are uh, having more of the responsibility of looking after children organizing the homeschooling looking after vulnerable relatives doing the housework uh, i'm not saying that men are not doing anything in relation to that but all the statistics show that women are bearing the main burden of that of course that in turn has led to some women having to face terrible choices when perhaps as we've opened up their workplaces opened and they've been asked to go back to work and they've had to say well there's no one here to with my children so what can i do so there's a, a real worry and research has shown that you know this could actually lead to women regressing in- you started the sherry blair foundation for women to really look at women's economic empowerment, why is money so important for women? I, I don't need to tell you really, do I? But in this world, money talks. <laughs> and those who have money tend to seem to be listened to more than those who don't. And the reality is, across the world, women are not having access mm-hmm. to, to money. Their voices are not being and if you look at the World Economic Forum uh, report of the gender gap that they do every year, and they measure health, education, 
economic opportunity and political power. And if you look at economic opportunity, last year, that actually regressed. So in 2018, they said it would take 212 years before men and women got equal access to employment opportunities. And in 2019, it's gone up to 257. The other indicators are all going in the same way, but women's involvement in the economy seems to be uh, a sticky point. What do we need to do to change this? Because I'm thinking, it, actually during the coronavirus period, we've seen some incredible women rising to the fore. We've seen praise for people like Cinder Ardem, for uh, female leaders around the world. So on the one hand, it feels like women have reached a kind of point where our power is seen and recognised, and yet there is this huge disparity. How do we bring other women with us? Well, I think it, it, it's about, I'm afraid, at the end of the day, the way we value women. Mm-hmm. Uh, in some societies, their women are valued even less yep. uh, than men, and um, even in societies like ours, certainly say that we value men and women equally and try to value men and women equally. Nevertheless, there are gender stereotypes which stick with us and the idea of what women can and cannot do. In my foundation, we've been surveying the women that we're working with in lower middle income countries. And time and time again, they tell us they face these gender stereotypes. So they go and ask for a loan for their business and they're told, where's your husband? Or they say, uh, they're told, well, women you know, don't understand money. You know, women can't manage money, which I find quite astonishing, given that most women do, in fact, manage their households. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, sometimes the work that we do for love in our home is not valued. And we see that, don't we, in the frontline workers? Yep. And it's the care workers. Caring is not valued in the way mm-hmm. it should mm-hmm. be. We don't. We sometimes underestimate the sort of work that goes on in every home uh, to make it clean, uh, to make sure people are fed, to make it a nurturing environment. That's kind of not regarded as as work at all, um, and therefore is less valued than um, some other things, whether it's going to the pub, perhaps. <laughs> how, do we, how do we have a situation? when it was more important to get the pubs open than it was getting our schools open. And where has childcare gone on the agenda? This is what I constantly ask every time we have an update. I'm like, why has nobody updated us on childcare? Um, Jerry- because somehow it's thought that, you know, women will muddle through somehow. And women are muddling through somehow. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, men are helping and supporting. But when it comes down to it, as I said before, in the end, it falls more on women's shoulders than on men. And for some women, that has literally led them to have to decide between uh, working outside the home and working in, in the home. And haven't we seen it even on television? Mm-hmm. We've seen some, even people presenting on television having a, a child inter, in, interrupting them. You never see that so much. The one man we did see that time, do you remember? Yeah. It was his wife who came running in. <laughs> Yes. to rescue them. I didn't see many men coming in to rescue. <laughs> um, there's an interesting point you made there around kind of gender stereotypes and I was thinking about one of them which is that actually you, the idea of mother as pri- have women as primary caregiver is so ingrained that even children recognise it so that if their mother is in the house even if the father is in charge of them they're more likely to go to mum when they need something. Um, how do we start to overcome some of those gender stereotypes? How do we well, I, turn them on their head? I think, first of all, we need to start to... Uh, two things. One, we need to find you, Ken. Mm. And we need to stop talking about this as though this is only a woman's issue. Yeah. Actually, it takes two to make a baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, two parents, we all know, uh, is, is, a, is, a, is a good thing for, for children. And so... It is about our parenting skills and how men and women working together can um, bring up the next generation and nurture their parents who are elderly and do all the other things. In once upon a time, you know, it was felt like that's what women did. At, women stayed at home and did that. Men went out to work. Now, actually, 
I'm not even sure that's true of working class women, like my own mother and grandmother, ever. But uh, the reality is certainly that was the that was the ideal family family life. But you know, it's not like that anymore. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Today, so many families two incomes uh, and need two incomes, uh, and women are going out to work as well. And we need to readjust not just the relationship between the sexes, but also the assumptions. Mm-hmm. We make in our workplace about you know who's doing what and whose responsibility it is uh, for the home. One of the things that I've noticed for amongst my female friends is that actually sometimes it all just gets a bit too tiring, having to constantly challenge, having to constantly say, "Oh no, that's my." my husband or my boyfriend who's in charge of that or oh no I don't deal with that it actually just gets to the point where it's so the stereotype is so exhausting that we sort of give in to it how as somebody who as I said at the beginning of the show when you know when you when uh Tony Blair became president uh, became president not quite became <laughs> prime minister Ooh, I know he's yeah uh, became prime minister and suddenly the papers were filled with and they had a very clear idea of what they thought your role should be and they told you when they, th- they thought you did it well and when they thought you didn't do it well how did you have the resilience to be able to kind of ignore that and keep going well, my husband would say it's because I'm a Bolshe scouser. <laughs> uh, I might say that it was because I had these amazing role models in my own grandmother and mother who had in different ways, both of them left school at 14. And my mother, when I was eight, was left as a single parent having to um, bring up her two children with the help of her mother-in-law. Um, you know, and they were determined that my sister and I would get the opportunities which... Perhaps if they'd had our education chances and, and, and the world opening up as it did open up in the 70s for women, yeah. uh, who knows what they might have achieved. So I was determined that I was not going to let them down. And I thought, listen, it's taken me uh, at that time over 20, 20 years to become a QC in a, in a career when I had three children under four at one point. And I still carried on with my career. And I wasn't going to give up my career just because my husband had changed his job. Mm-hmm. What would you say to women now who are facing maybe some of those choices? I know lots of women who are facing choices where perhaps their husband gets promoted and it's like, okay, well, actually we have to move or I'm going to have to take a step back so that we've got somebody more at home. It, would you say do that and support? Or would you say, do you know what, go with your own desires first no I would say neither of those things I'll tell you what I said <laughs> to my, my own son sons when they both got married to, to women with great careers mm-hmm. and uh, first of all I said how proud I was of them to choosing such fantastic young women as their partners but I also said to them that the real test would come when perhaps the, their wives have an opportunity in their mm-hmm. career and would they be prepared to take a step back because it was better for the family as a whole and better for that that the wife's career should take uh, the first mm-hmm. step? Because, you know, let's face it, in life there's balance. Yeah. And sometimes in a marriage there's always give and take. The question is, do we always assume that the person who has to give, the person whose career is less important, mm-hmm. is the woman? We know that doesn't actually happen because... You see many successful women who are actually supported by husbands who've done caring roles yep. and help out in the home. So, you know, it's it's about just not making the assumptions mm. that just because you happen to have a Y chromosome, you um you're entitled to put your needs and careers first. Mm. It's actually about each couple doing what's right for them. Mm. Mm. I feel like we are living weirdly in a time right now where we have become even more ingrained in our idea of what the stereotype of leadership looks like and that it looks like a white man of a certain age with a sort of a, a, a slightly bombastic level of confidence and that we uh. think this is great leadership. <laughs> you keep describing our current prime minister <laughs> not necessarily what I think as and I don't think it's what everybody thinks as when they think about leadership you're right mm-hmm. uh, of course there's been these stereotypes but today 
there's no longer an excuse for that, is there? Because we have seen different role models. And one of the important things, and one of the things that's different, if you like, about coming into, for example, my profession, the law, when mm -hmm. I came in in the 1970s, only 10% of the profession were women. The first woman QC had been appointed in 1949. And there were very still, there were still only about under 10 women QCs when I became a, a lawyer. Today, you know, we see women. We've seen, we've had a we've had two women prime ministers mm -hmm. in our country. We see women leading their countries. We see women holding FTSE 100 positions. We see women leading the TUC. Uh, we see women uh, achieving in so many areas. And role models matter so much. And so the more that young girls and young boys can see that a leader actually uh, can look like, uh, um, well, whoever, whoever you like to choose, but actually has a skirt on. <laughs> um, so that would that would be, uh, you know, Angela Merkel. That would be great. <laughs> Is there anything for you that you still want to achieve in your career? Absolutely. I'm still uh, very much active. I mean, I've been very lucky. I've been able to work from home and... Um, in, the, in the work I do in my uh, law firm, which mm -hmm. is a lot of international work. We do a lot, for example, about advising businesses about how to become good corporate citizens and modern slavery, which has been in the news a lot. And, of course, my foundation, which I set up in 2008, mm -hmm. is there to ensure that women in lower middle-income countries, where they do have more barriers, more barriers because they're not educated as well as the boys, more barriers because they're not taken seriously, more barriers because they don't get the finance. We give them the training, the networks, the mentoring that they need in order to be able to transform their future, make the future the future they want for themselves. I want that for my sons and my daughters, and I want that for my uh, granddaughters and my grandsons. Um. One thing I think you articulated uh, really beautifully there, actually, is the ability for all of us to make change, even if we are not, uh, even if we don't have a level of political power. So we think kind of big societal change comes from government down. And actually, I think we're really living in a period now where as individuals, we can decide to make a change and we have the power to go and do that. Do you think that's do you think that's true? Do you think as individuals, we have a level of power now that we perhaps haven't had before? I think there's well, two things. One, having been married to someone who was prime minister and a politician for a long time, you would be, you know, politicians have always paid attention to what their constituents think and to what the public thinks. Uh, so, you know, I think you've, I've always, for example, believed it's really important to vote. And sometimes even you don't think your one vote makes a difference, but mm -hmm. it's the cumulative effect of all those individual votes that gets us the government we decide we deserve but on top of that of course we have today and it's one of the things that my foundation has been able to utilize in a very positive way the power of the internet the power of technology i mean we have been able to deliver to 160,000 women in over 100 countries um, pr programs about how to grow their businesses at the moment, we've got a thousand women on our new COVID resilience program that, that, that we're doing, and we're doing all of that using technology. Now, technology there is a, is a huge force for good. Uh, I heard quite a bit of what you were saying before. Technology can also be an echo chamber yeah. if you're not careful. So, uh, you know, like everything, there's, uh, there's good and bad in everything. Mm. Well, I think somebody said that once in a song, didn't they? <laughs> I think it's Ebony Ivory by Paul McGarden. <laughs> Great knowledge. Um, finally, oh, I'm coming to Liverpool, you know. <laughs> I've just finished watching the Hillary Clinton documentary on Sky, which I absolutely loved. And Me too. it made the one wonderful thing I really enjoyed about it was seeing this kind of transitional moment almost in her career when she went, oh, hang on, I have supported in this, but I can actually do it and I am going to do it. Would you ever consider going into politics? I think that uh, my time for politics has probably passed, but I don't believe... I've always seen uh, the law as a huge way of, of contributing to social change, and that's mm -hmm. what I've done. And now with my foundation as well, I've seen how 
uh, you can, there's a huge power for good in the world. And there's plenty of ways that each and every one of us can change the world. You know, including, as I have spoke before, about my mum and my grandma, it was their belief that as a girl I was entitled to that right to education, that right to fulfill my dreams, that pushed me on and got me to where I am today. Sherry, thank you so much for joining us here on Badass Women's Hour. Uh, Cherie Blair there talking about her career and her hopes and ambitions for young women coming through today. Um, just a really uh, beautiful example for me. I was growing up as a teenager when Tony Blair was elected prime minister and when the papers started writing all their views on Cherie Blair. And I grew up with an opinion on her and then I got to meet her and I realised how different people are when you meet them when you hear from them when you actually listen to what they have to say as opposed to just taking the media's view on them I am part of the media so I can say this sometimes we don't portray people totally accurately so I'm thrilled to have had the chance to talk to her this evening I hope you enjoyed it and if you stuck around for it some of you on Twitter not so keen uh, maybe you had your minds changed too I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Hashtag power to the perineum this is a new campaign from my expert midwife's co-founder leslie gilchrist all about the trauma that it turns out a lot of women are going through when they give birth she's here to talk to us about it now hi leslie hello how are you good thank you <laughs> uh so first of all what when we're talking about perineal trauma while giving birth give us the gory details what is happening so the perineum is um, that bit of skin between your vagina and your anus, and it's that bit that stretches the most when you give birth, because you would always imagine that the whole of your vagina has to stretch, but no, it's this piece of skin, oh. and it's, um, it's that thing that every, every woman that I've ever looked after as a midwife, they've always panicked about that. It's their biggest thing, that and pooing while giving birth. <laughs> Hearing is their biggest fear. And we wanted to we wanted to take away that big taboo around it and say to women, look, not only do we need to normalise this and get you talking about it and getting you to understand where it is, we actually need to let you know that there's a way that you can reduce your tears. And we've known about this since the 80s, this research. You know, this yeah. is new news. Um, but what is new is us getting out there and saying to women, right, we're going to be honest with you. We're not going to infantilize you we're going to be really honest and we're going to give you all the information you need the choice about whether you do this massage is entirely up to you but we will give you we'll give you the tools we'll give you the information the knowledge to help to give you that control back to give you that power back i mean this is a big issue because this affects nine out of ten women who give birth that's it i mean it's a massive I mean, that's... number i want to 
Do we need to normalise it? Should we not be questioning why is this happening to 90% of women? Well, when you look, I mean, when you look in the animal kingdom, it's Mm -hmm. common. There is an argument that actually the fact that we give birth in hospitals now, uh, we have less control over the process of our birth, what we do, the positions that we can use, all the things that we as midwives and birth professionals know help reduce the risk of tearing Mm -hmm. when you give birth. It's taken out of your control a lot of the time, Um, you know, when you're in hospital and you maybe don't have the information that you probably would need to be able to make the decision about um, the best positions and things like that to give birth in. But um, yes, it's designed, your body is designed to tear. Uh, It's designed to heal very quickly. It's, you know, it's got great blood supply. Mm. It does heal well, um, but it's the... It's that preparation that you can do that we know actually does help reduce that risk of tearing. So tell us what this preparation is that we should all be doing. So if you imagine that um, you're giving birth to your first baby and that baby's head stretches the skin and the perineum slowly. So you may be at home Mm -hmm. or you're in control of your birth. You may be hitting the birthing. So there's a very slow, controlled birth of your baby's head. And the muscle and the skin around your perineum is allowed to stretch normally and naturally. The next time you give birth, it's already been stretched. It may have torn a little bit and it's much, much easier to give birth. And you're much, much less likely to actually tear with your Mm -hmm. second birth. So perineal massage is trying to replicate that first birth with your first birth so that you're not putting yourself through the risk of tears with your first birth. You're doing all the preparation from 34 weeks onwards. And there's been some brilliant research that's been done and and quite a few studies as well that have used the same techniques and the same methods of research and have found the same findings. So in research terms, we would say that's really quite robust research. Mm. Is there not an argument that says, actually, if we know that women are going to tear, we should... I mean, it feels. I I haven't given birth, so I don't know. If we know women are going to, we know women are going to tear. Actually, we should be seeing that as a medical procedure. We should be maybe cutting or uh, kind of finding a way to make it a safer or less uh, less left up to nature and just depending upon how big your baby's head is and how great your perineal massage beforehand is. Yeah, so you, you, there could be an argument for that. However, mm-hmm. an episiotomy, you're guaranteeing a cut, aren't you? Mm-hmm. So whereas with um, with perineal massage, you can reduce that risk of tears. With an episiotomy, you'd be probably doing that for every single woman that's having so, a first baby. Well, I and mean, nine out, of ten, what... nine out of ten of them are tearing. So what's, how, how much does it bring it down? If we were to do this peren- perineal massage, how much does it bring down the risk so the the studies vary so the best study that we found um was 2014 Mm -hmm. and it was looking at second degree tears which are the tears to the muscle and then the bigger tails that involve involve the muscle of the anus yeah and depending on which research it's about 20 percent there or thereabouts that reduction by 20 percent so we're bringing it down to kind of 60 to 70% of women are still going to tear quite badly. Not, not quite badly. I mean, nine out of 10, okay. that's including grazes. Gla- okay. Grazes to the labia, yep. you know, whereas an episiotomy, yep. that's a second degree tear. That's a yeah. second degree tear right there. And what happens when women, you know, what happens when women tear like that? What are the long-term consequences of it? So um, grazes um, or just cuts to the skin, they heal very quickly. Um, A tear, maybe second degree tear, a small one that just involves a little bit of the muscle, again, with good hygiene, that will heal really quite quickly. It's the tears to the back passage, so that ring of muscle around your anus that um, helps you keep in wind and poo. Mm -hmm. If that gets damaged, obviously the integrity of that muscle is not as good. So those women with what we would call third and fourth degree tears, they are... If they have symptoms of that, they can't hold in wind. So they, they essentially become incontinent. Yeah, that's it, of flatus and poo. And, you know, for those women, it's it devastates their life, you know. I mean, absolutely. I absolutely know because, well, I haven't given birth. Lots and lots of my friends have. And 
I'm going to say the number that have done so without having some degree of trauma is very, very small. And also the number of them who now say things like, no, sorry, I can't go on that trampoline because if I do, I'm going to wee myself is very, very high. Why are we letting women's bodies be damaged in this way? Well, we, I think the reason is because we don't talk about it often enough. And if mm. we don't talk about it, that woman that is jumping on the trampoline and peeing herself thinks yep. she's the only one that's doing it. So she doesn't go to someone else and says, is yeah. this normal? No, that's not normal. You need to go to your GP. It just doesn't get discussed. And as women, it seems that our problems, um, this, you know, this whole, and it is seen as that, isn't it? This yep. women's problems, they're not taken seriously. Now, whether or not it's because we don't talk about them openly enough because we're embarrassed and it becomes a vicious cycle. It's difficult to tell. But certainly by opening up, taking that lid off it and saying to women, look, you know, we're going to talk about this and we're going to give you a voice and we're going to let you understand actually what the facts are. And then we'll give you the information and then you can make the decision. Because there's lots of other things you can do to reduce your chance of tears. Um but it's about giving women that information. And if we don't tell women about those risks, they're not going to go and try and find that information. I wonder, though, whether we give women the information, but then whether we give them the options to do something about it. Because I would imagine if you're a woman who got this information and you said nine out of ten women are going to tear and you know, that potentially things that come with that, if it's a second or third degree tear, are incontinence or you know heavy degrees of you know having to look after yourself afterwards if one of those women turned around and said you know what this looks just like a little bit too much for me thanks I'll take a c-section what would be the response to that well you've got risk for c-section as well mm. so you've got that major abdominal surgery mm. um and as as clinicians when we speak to women about risks of vaginal birth so if we've got a woman that we know has got a really large baby or has had uh, a previous large tear before and is having problems, then we take that into account when we're counselling about cesarean sections because mm. we know, yes, there are risks, but we would still explain what those risks were and let her choose. Yeah. Because you know, it is still their choice. Mm. Do you think, what can we do to support women? Because... I imagine you're pregnant with your first baby, you're already worrying about absolutely everything that's out there, and then somebody comes along and says, "By the way, have you? Do you know what's going to happen to your body when you give birth? How can we support women so that they do feel like they have some level of control over this?" We need to start antenatal education programs again. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they they were run by the NHS for a long time. Certainly, when I started as a student midwife, yep. they were just starting to phase them out by the NHS. So we no longer had just general classes for everyone. It became very sporadic and depended on postcodes mm -hmm. or if you could afford to pay to do classes. So we need to bring that back. We need to bring back information classes where women can actually attend or videos where they've got the information that they need, not just about the giving birth part, but actually coping and labour as well, because that makes that has a huge impact on their perineum. Yeah the decisions that they make in their labour about maybe certain forms of pain relief will have an impact on the perineum. And they need this information before they go into labour. They need it quite far in advance so that they've got time to absorb it and maybe do a little bit more reading and make decisions about what they want to do. Um, there's more that, um, that can be done during labour. There's um, warm compresses that can be applied to the perineum. Hmm. Um, as the baby's head's crowning, that, we know, helps to reduce the risk as well. Interestingly, episiotomy, there is no evidence that would suggest that that reduces the risk of tears either. That's, yeah. that, you know, that's the other thing with episiotomy, that we, you know, we have to be honest with women that as much as you know, we'll try lots of different things yeah. to help reduce that, and sometimes you know, an episiotomy is required, and it's the safest thing for baby. Mm. Um, it's it it can be done to help to prevent a very large tear, but it's quite difficult to predict that. Well, Lizzie, it's fascinating talking to you. Although it does make me think that the sooner we find a way to incubate babies in 
backpacks that we carry around <laughs> with us, the better. Um, uh, if you want to know more about the campaign, if you are pregnant at the moment and you think you need some help, do go check out the hashtag power to the perineum. I think it actually should be hashtag protect the perineum, but uh, it is power to the perineum. Um, coming up next, what's it like dating when you're intersex? We meet one person who is intersex and has experienced it, and they're going to tell us their story. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Now, let's get back to our guest. Now, we love to talk about dating on this show, but what is dating like for you if you are intersex? Our next guest is here to tell us about their experiences of it. We are joined by River Gallo, uh, one of the first A Letter From films created by Badu. Hi, River. Hi, how are you? And also it's pronounced Gallo, not Gallo. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, thank okay. you. Thank you I'm, for correcting me. I'm here to correct white people. That's, <laughs> that's what I'm here for. <laughs> Uh, well, thanks so much for joining us tonight. First of, of all, um, Badu approached you to make the film. How did you feel when they asked you to talk about your experiences? Um, I, you know, initially I was actually very reluctant. Um, I, you know, dating is something as an intersex person that's very, very personal and, you know, very... Um, you know, it's hard because um, I, I don't know if, how many listeners know, but the definition of intersex is it's an umbrella term of people born with bodies who don't fit the typical definitions of male or female. Um, so for me, my relationship to my body, uh, because I was uh, born with the condition where my testicles were absent at birth, um, I always had this contentious relationship with my body. Um, and I didn't find out about it until I was 12. And then um, when I was 16, I had an unconsented plastic surgery to implant prosthetic testicles into my body. Um, oh, and it was completely sorry. cosmetic. Yeah, it was, it was awful. Mm-hmm. And it was completely cosmetic. And, you know, it all stems from doctors wanting bodies to look cisgendered, look mm-hmm. like either male or female. Um, so the intersex community faces all this medical trauma based on doctors pretty much making decisions and not informing parents of all the choices that intersex people can have. Um, So essentially I grew up, you know, kind of being scared if like, you know, a guy would find out that I was intersex or, Mm -hmm. you know, so um, my personal dating life has been, you know, kind of complicated, but um, I guess when Badu approached me, I thought of all that stuff, but I also thought about, you know, when, when I did start becoming more comfortable about being open about talking about being intersex and then, you know, putting it in my profile and on, on my dating apps and like, you know, uh, presenting more feminine and gender fluid in my pictures. Mm -hmm. I actually found that people like a a ton of people just started messaging me and like, I was getting the most attention that I ever did. I mean, not all of it good, but like, I think it was a testament of people think, uh, seeing authenticity and being attracted to when someone's really comfortable in their own skin, that they find attractive and sexy and, you yeah. know, yeah. That piece there about being comfortable in your own skin, how did your kind of experiences growing up impact this? And how did you get to a place where you were comfortable in your own skin? Um, well, I grew up pretty much not talking. I actually didn't know the word intersex until oh. I was 27. Um, and essentially, I, I so I'm a filmmaker and an actor. Um, and I went to drama school and created theater pieces about being queer and about my gender identity, but it wasn't until I switched to filmmaking and went to film school that I realized that, you know, I wanted to put more of my personal narrative about this medical condition and all the trauma that I experienced growing up. And so I was just doing simple Googling, like um, just for research for the script um, of the movie Pony Boy, uh, a short film that I wrote and directed and acted in, um, and then discovered that my condition was a part of the intersex umbrella. And before then, I had no idea that there was a community and there was human rights issues about, you know, body autonomy. Um, So on one hand, it was very clarifying when I found out, but also absurd that it took me 27 years to find that uh, an important piece of my identity. Um, And when when you did discover it, how... How did that impact your dating life? Were you quite open about it from the get-go or did it take you a while to 
get to that place where you could just be really open about it? Um, it took me over the course of like a year, I think, from um, maybe a little less. I mean, I've always been queer and like, you know, experimented with like looks and makeup and stuff, but I never understood it to the totality of like how like it was in relation to the way I was actually born, that I was actually born in a non-binary body. Um, That then I really became like, oh, this isn't just something, a small medical thing about me. This is my identity. And so it was, it was empowering actually to learn that, um, um, just that this part of myself that I was so shameful about Mm -hmm. was actually something that made me really special and unique and, and that was beautiful. How do you think people within the intersex community generally find dating? Is it generally find dating? Um, um, I don't. I think it's it's complicated to say because yeah. as intersex people within the community, you could also identify as cisgendered, or you could identify as trans, or gay, or queer, or lesbian. Um, so it's like intersex is like one identity and you could also hold many different identities so i think intersex people in total have varying different experiences with dating but i think um we what we all share in common is this medical trauma that is like very often most of the time in within our genitals um and and just the shame and the um you know kind of feeling like you're a freak or kind of feeling like you know no one else is like you which is, which is a narrative that, you know, really comes from the medical industry from doctors believing, you know, it's a deformity or disorder as opposed to just a natural variation that the human body can come in. Um, so a lot of what we're fighting for is for people to realize, like, bodies don't have to be just one way, um, you know, and, and it's up to us to really, you know, find the empowerment and, and you know, going against, uh, you know, a culture and a medical industry that's had one stance on it for millennia. Do you think that stance is linked to um, our kind of, our need to hold on to just two genders and that sort of um, reactive stream of society which says, no, you're male or you're female and we are just sticking with that? Absolutely. That is exactly what it has to do with. I think people are so obsessed and brainwashed with the with the idea of a gender binary. But mm-hmm. the idea of in binary is actually as a concept and a philosophy in, in all forms. Honestly, this idea of good versus evil, this idea of like, you know, not realizing that like there's there's always a middle path. And it's about embracing, um, you know, the unknown or the other and, and actually realizing that it's that that's the normal. The normal is variation. The normal is you could see it in nature. You can see it in flowers. You can see. I mean, there are in, flowers are intersex essentially. Yeah. Um. So it's like you, if you see it in the natural world and we don't judge it, hmm. like why why do we as humans do it? And it's because it's a human construction. You said when you put intersex on your dating profile, you got lots of attention. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Was it? What did people make of it? What What were some things well, people are asking you about? I mean, it, it varied, you know, mm-hmm. some people were just, I think some people were just attracted to me because of my, you know, my pictures and I just like look yeah. good, like, you know, <laughs> just being me. Um, but also I think some people were intrigued to know there were also some people that were fetishizing. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it really, it was from A to Z, honestly. Um, so I, I think in general though, there was, there was, there was people that questioned me about it. And in the beginning I would educate and stuff. But now I've just like, you can Google that. Like, you're on your phone anyway right now. Like, you can literally Google the word. Yeah. Actually, um, I think but I'm always down to have discourse about it. One of the things that's really interesting that you mentioned there, which I think some of our listeners might be wondering about, is the concept of being attracted to someone versus fetishizing, fetishizing them. Can you tell us about the difference right. there? Oh, my God. That's something that I really started to think about, because at the Mm. same time, like having fetishes is a healthy expression of sexuality and a beautiful expression of sexuality as well. So I think it comes with consent. I think Mm. it comes with rapport and, and, you know, creating that dynamic together. I think if you just right off the bat, like message someone like, you know, you know, Mm -hmm. some crazy, like really forward thing, it's just like, well, you don't know how they're going to receive that. So it's about like, yeah. you know, building that up, you know, asking, specifically on dating apps, at least, like when you're te- messaging someone, like, 
because um, you really never know. Someone might be really into it and someone might be like really offended or going through something with their body or just feeling kind of, you know, dysmorphic in some way. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's just a different conversation that needs to be had about, you know, uh, casual sex and, and in a way to make it, and a fetishizing in a way to make it, uh, you know, just safer emotionally, you know. Absolutely. What would you say to anyone who perhaps is scrolling through a dating site and they see someone they like the look of and in this person's profile it says they're into sex? What is a kind of, what's a nice approach? What's a way of being like, oh, I want to ask you about this, but I don't want to hit the wrong tone? What, right. Do you have if guidelines? They fit, right. If, they, if you see someone that says they're intersex, Mm-hmm. And you don't know anything about intersex. You could literally just Google it first of all, and yeah. and just look at it yourself. Yeah. And then and then and then be like, oh, I looked up intersex. Like, uh, like, um, you know, I, I'm curious. W- would you be comfortable talking more about it with me? Um, because I'm really interested in learning more, and I want to, you know, mm-hmm. improve my consciousness about it. Um, like, you know, something like that, where, because I think as intersex people, uh, for me at least, as an activist especially, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of intersex people, um, by proxy, or by, just by the nature of being intersex, it's almost like activism, and just yeah. speaking about it is activism. Um, that I, I'm always open to have, you know, uh, to have discourse about it, because I think the, the raising of consciousness of intersex issues is what's going to ultimately really help legislation to be passed mm. um so if i can change one person's mind even if, if i'm gr- i'm on grinder and i have like you know i haven't have the time like <laughs> I, I'll, I'll do it because it's just you know i think it's that curiosity and that leaning in that we all as humans have to do more to each mm. other to other cultures because you know it's about connecting and to what you don't understand and understanding and then you know changing your mind about it yeah great point what legislation would you like to see passed to protect intersex people? So right now, in a few different countries, I know here in America, um, it's going by states, but California became the first state to put on the state legislator um, uh, a bill, proposed a bill to ban uh, medically unnecessary um, unconsensual surgeries on intersex youth and infants, um, and essentially allowing parents and parents to make a more informed choice once a child is at an age that they can make an informed decision. Um, And it didn't go through uh, Mm. because, you know, uh, the pediatricians, you know, they're all like a, like a gang essentially. Um, Mm. And they, you know, they, they said the the bill was too broad. And um, I think a lot of the debate is like, when does a child can make, when can a child make informed decisions about their body? And honestly, I feel like children, you know, are much smarter than than what we think, but we hide things from them. or We try to, you know, not tell them the whole truth, thinking that we're actually helping them. But I think that's lazy parenting. And I think that's, um, you know, a a shame on the medical community to do that to a child. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, education is of utmost importance. So for me, you know, teaching people like on a broad level, you know, what intersex is like in schools would be amazing, but also, you know, making sure that these surgeries are stopped and realizing that, you know, children, children know more about their bodies than, than we lead on. Um, and, and just respecting the body autonomy of every human. And that goes beyond being intersex. That goes to women's rights and abortions, rights. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know, everyone has power over their own body, no matter what age, so for someone to make a life-altering change to somebody's body for no medical reason is a violation of human rights, and that has to end today, tomorrow, like right now. Um, but but what it's going to take is people learning and, and people educating themselves and, and forming solidarity with intersex people. And that starts with the queer community actually being, mm-hmm. um, you know, more vocal about intersex rights. Because even queer people don't really know much about, um, you know, in the intersex community. Um, so I think it's, I think the trans movement, especially in the last decade, have really paved the way and opened the doors now for, for intersex people to now, 
you know, kind of step into their power and mm-hmm. also demand the same the same rights. Amazing. River, thank you so much for talking to us tonight. It's been absolutely fascinating listening to you and I think we have all learned a lot. So thank you very much for your time. Um, that was River Guy there talking about their new film that they have made with Badu about intersex dating. Please do go and check it out. And as they said, learn. Like We can all keep learning all the time. So please do go and do that. The more we learn, the more tolerant I think we are of everyone. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass Guests and in-depth chat. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.